of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices, be repeated endlessly, year after year, making perfect those who draw near to worship. Otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshippers would have been cleansed once and for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds their sins and lawless acts. I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Hebrews 10. So, Hebrews, to remind us, is a book about not giving up, about keeping on, keeping on in Jesus, written to a bunch of Christians, a church or a group of churches, most likely from a Jewish background, because we see that they were tempted to give up and go back to the Old Testament ways, go back to the Jewish culture, go back to the things they were used to in the temple and the law and the priesthoods and the sacrifices and these things. And so the whole way through this book, really, it's about one topic. It's about what we might call the supremacy of Jesus, or in more normal English, Jesus is better. Jesus is better than anything you could find anywhere else. Jesus is better, if you happen to be from a Jewish background, than anything the Old Testament without Jesus. Obviously, really, the Old Testament was pointing to Jesus, but if you take your eyes off Jesus in the Old Testament, anything the Old Testament could offer, well, Jesus is better. In fact, he's the one the Old Testament was pointing to. And in chapter 10, he's really kind of rounding up a section he's been on for quite a few chapters, really on that theme, thinking about covenants and priests and sacrifices and all that sort of, sort of stuff. He's saying, don't go back. 
Not many of us here are from a Jewish background. I'm not sure if any of us are from a Jewish background. And we're not probably tempted to go back to Old Testament Judaism or even rabbinic Judaism of today and, um, and, and become Orthodox Jews or anything like that. But nevertheless, what he has to say about the Lord should encourage us, uh, should encourage us to keep on trusting and clinging to Jesus when things are hard. If I told you, and come to our passage now, that I'd been to a new restaurant this week, a new restaurant this week, and you said to me, you restaurant, oh, what was the menu like? And I said it was about this big, and it had writing kind of printed. You said, no, 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 I don't mean that. I mean, what was the food, you know, the menu? The, the menu, when people say that, they, the menu is, it's a kind of way of, talking about the reality, isn't it? The food, the menu um, tells you something about the food, but when you order it and it comes, that's the thing that you're waiting for, isn't it? You can't eat a menu, can you? Have any of you children ever tried to eat a menu? No? It wouldn't be very satisfying. It wouldn't fill you up, even though the menu points to the reality. Um, hold that thought. We'll come back to that thought later. Do any of you children ever play with shadows? Anyone ever played with shadows? Yeah, a few children. What have you done with shadows? Jumped over a shadow? Jump on them? Nathan? Shadow tag? Oh, well, yeah, oh, that's cool. Yeah, shadow tag. Do you know what my favorite thing about shadows is? If you're outside in the sun, and suddenly, Ian might get this one, I don't know if anyone else will. You're outside in the sun, suddenly it goes dark, and it's light again. What sort of shadow can that be? Anyone know? Sometimes you have, you, you, you get a flash of dark, and then you, anyone know what I'm thinking of? An aircraft. Very occasionally, if you're in the right place at the right time, you get a shadow and you look up and there's a 747 or something at low altitude, goes right over the sun, and sometimes you get the shadow. I think that's very exciting. Now, I love the shadows of aircraft. Have any of you ever traveled to Spain on the shadow of an aircraft? No? Why not, Nate? Why can't you? If a plane flies past and you get the shadow of the aircraft on the ground, if you sit on it, why can't you go to Spain or France or wherever you'd like to go, or America? You're not really on the plane. It's just a shadow of the thing up there, isn't it? Yeah? Yeah? You can't actually fly on a shadow of a plane. I love shadows of planes. You can't fly on the shadow of a plane. Look at verse 1 of our chapter as he begins. He's reminding them not to go back to the stuff they used to do when they were Jews, because those things were just a shadow of what Jesus has done. Listen to this. He says, the law, by the law he means all the things that the Old Testament set out in the law, the priests, the sacrifices, the temples, um, the funny food laws, all the things in different ways that pointed to Jesus. He says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. In the same way that the menu isn't the reality of the food in a restaurant, a shadow of an aircraft is not the reality of traveling to Spain or America or wherever you'd like to go. The law is just a shadow of the good things that are coming, the good things that Jesus was going to do for his people. So he's telling them, 
don't be tempted to go back to that stuff. It's just a shadow. He's been telling them this for chapter after chapter after chapter, actually, but I think it's quite a nice illustration he uses. The Old Testament, all those priests and sacrifices and all the things you read about, if you read through Leviticus and some of those early books and Exodus, they're a shadow of the thing. And the real thing is Jesus. They're like a signpost to the thing. And the real thing is who? Jesus. Yeah. You can't eat a menu. You can't fly on an aircraft shadow. And actually, you can't get to heaven with the shadows of the good things if you don't have trust in Jesus. That's very important. You know, before Jesus came, there were true believers But they were longing for Jesus to come. They were longing for God to come and save. They knew that there was something that really these sacrifices and these temples couldn't do. They knew they needed God to come and save them. And verse 1 continues. He says, for this reason, that is, this reason is because the law, because the, the temple was just a shadow. It wasn't the real thing. It was just a shadow. For this reason, because the law was just a shadow, it can never By the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. They knew, true believers, even in those days, that these things they were doing, God wanted them to do it because it taught them about Jesus. But those things themselves could never save them, could they? The actual animal sacrifice couldn't make you good enough to go to heaven. They looked forward to the real sacrifice of Jesus so important when we read the Bible. These things are signposts pointing to Jesus, but they didn't save. And because true believers were looking forward to God coming to save, God himself would come and save them, and they knew it. They didn't know all the details. They didn't know how it would happen, but they knew God was coming to redeem his people. And that meant when Jesus did come, what did all those true believers do? They believed in him. They received him. Jesus talks about in John coming to his own. Many people did not receive him. But those who truly believed did receive him. And what the writer is telling these, these Jewish background Christians here is you've come to Jesus. Cling to him. Keep going with Jesus. He was the one you've been waiting for. If you're truly God's, you've come to God through Jesus. Keep on keeping on with Jesus. Those other things could never make anyone perfect, but Jesus can. That's why he says that. Those things could never make perfect those who draw near, because they were just shadows. Yeah. That's what he's talking about. And then, in case we haven't got it, he says in verse 2, he says, otherwise, so if those things could make you perfect, if the sacrifice in a temple with a man in a funny costume and a poor sheep or a poor lamb or a poor bull and their blood, if that could get you to heaven then actually they would have stopped being offered. They would have stopped doing those sacrifices because the people would have been good enough for heaven. He says, otherwise, would they not have stopped being offered? If those sacrifices were good enough, you'd go once and then you'd be clean, wouldn't you? But they didn't. No, if they were good enough, he says, the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would have no longer felt guilty for their sins. So could those sacrifices cleanse people? Make them fit for heaven? No. They couldn't. Otherwise they would have stopped. Do you know how many sacrifices there were? How many days a year did they do sacrifices? Have a guess. I think Nathan was first. 
Two days a year, anyone, anyone advance on two days a year? Lydia? Every day. Every, Lydia's got it, you can't do more than every day. Every day, in the temple there were sacrifices every day, and animals were sacrificed. And weekly, there were special Sabbath and other sacrifices. So on top of the daily sacrifices were weekly sacrifices. And does anyone know how they did months in, the old, in Old Testament times? They didn't have our months. You know what they used for months? When a new something appeared in the sky... A new moon. Now, I should have checked this before I came out. Can anyone tell me how long the lunar cycle is? How long it is from new moon to new moon? I bet if none of you know, Ian will be able to tell me. Oh, no. Some navigation and all that. Anyone know? Sorry? We'll go with 28 days because no one knows any better. So 28 days, Mark says. I think it is. I think it's about four weeks. Um, so the lunar cycle, and the Jews had to have special cycles for new moons. They were sort of monthly cycles, and they had some sacrifices at special times of year. Can you children remember any of the special times of the year there were sacrifices? Remember any of the names of the feasts they used to celebrate? One of them begins with P and was a special kind of lamb. But Passover, well done, Ayla. And there was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, uh, many more feasts. The Day of First Fruits, Pentecost, um, and then they were just the spring ones, and there were autumn feasts as well. The most special of which, the holiest as they saw it, was the Day of Atonement, where once a year, by the blood of bulls and goats, they would come in to the most holy place. So basically, there was death all the time, wasn't there? Sacrifices daily, extra sacrifices weekly, extra, extra sacrifices monthly, and extra, extra, extra sacrifices on this yearly. Like, that's a lot of killing, isn't it? And what does the writer say? That after a while, the people were ready to go to heaven. Yeah? Kevin's shaking her head. No? Who thinks Yes. No, he says, for this reason, it, it can never, by the same sacrifices, repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near. What he's saying is, that stuff couldn't get you to heaven. Look how much blood and guts and it couldn't get people to heaven. But Jesus can. He's saying, don't go back. Trust Jesus. And then we said, otherwise they would have not stopped. Would they not have stopped being offered the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for sins. Another question for you children. What does a thermometer measure? Sex? Temperature. Good. These get harder. What does a magnetometer measure? There is a clue in the name. You've probably never heard of it. Tilly? Yes, Magnetism. There's a clue in the name, but Tilly was the only one who was prepared to guess, so well done, Tilly. Magnetism, you can measure the strength and direction of magnetic fields with a magnetometer. Okay, you have a magnetometer to measure magnet, magnetic fields. Temperature is measured with a thermometer. What about this one? What does an altimeter measure? An altimeter. And I know Ian will know this one if none of you children know. What does an altimeter measure? Ian? Altitude, which is what? That's a fancy word for what? Height. So, if you want to measure height in an aircraft, use an altimeter. What about this one? Many of you have one of these, or your parents do, but you may not know what it, what it is. What is a tachometer? What does that measure? My dad always insisted I use the right word for this particular implement. Some people call it a rev counter. That's not the proper name. It's a tachometer. In the car, when, you, when dad or mom revs the accelerator, it goes, you know the little dial? You've seen it? That's what it is. It measures the speed of the engine. 
as the engine revs. Okay, here's the last one, the last instrument. What does it measure? The conscience. If those other things measure those things, the conscience measures something. What does it measure? Anyone know? Ayla? Right or wrong? That's really what it does measure. I would say the quantity it measures is guilt. That is really about whether you've done right or wrong, isn't it? When we've done wrong, now consciences don't work perfectly. Sometimes people don't feel guilty when they should. And sometimes people feel, feel too guilty when they should not. But God has given us a conscience so that we know when we've done wrong, as Ayla said. And, and we feel guilty. And did you notice in our reading that there was a problem? That these worshippers in the Old Testament, their consciences weren't clean. Because look what it says. It says the worshippers, they would have been, if the sacrifices were effective, they would have been completely cleaned of their conscience. But he says this, look, the worshippers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But they did still feel guilty, is what he's saying, isn't it? They went to temple, they went to see all these sacrifices of animals, and they still felt guilty. And if you still feel guilty, consciences measure right or wrong, as I said. They measure guilt. If someone still feels guilty when they go to the temple, what does that tell you? What has not yet been dealt with? The guilt of sin. They still felt guilty. That's what he was saying. They went, and they still felt guilty. Because who can deal with guilt of sin? Did you? Jesus can. The only way you don't still feel guilty for your sins is when you come to God trusting in Jesus. In those days, when you went to the temple and you went away, you just still felt guilty. Imagine if you did a bad sin. All sins are bad. It's a way of talking. You did a really bad sin. And it was the day after the Day of Atonement. That was the special. How often was the Day of Atonement? Karen? Once a year. How long would you have to wait before you could go back with the blood of, of goats and bulls? How long? Not quite. One, one day less than a year. See what you did there. Yes, one year. One year minus the day. You'd have to go back. You'd have to wait. And, and, and there was all this waiting. There was all this waiting. So all that blood, all that guts in the temple, people still felt guilty. They kept going back and back and back. That's what he's saying. You had to wait. That would have been odd, wouldn't it? And the reason for that is that the temple, and no religion, in fact, not just the Jewish religion, no religion can deal with two things. No religion can deal with the penalty for sin. The penalty, that's the cost, the punishment for sin. And no religion, even that one, can deal with the power of sin. That is where sin takes over our lives. Two things, aren't they? The penalty for sin needs to be paid. And bulls and goats can pay that. And the power of sin, our hearts are dark. You know that, even children, don't you? The sin gets in your heart. You can be angry, you can be mean, you can be hateful towards God. And these people went year after year, week after week, day after day, and their consciences accept what it was meant to do. Who was it meant to make them think of? Jesus. It was meant to make them put their trust in him, the one who would come. But it's no different for us. Do you know, there's no religion, nothing you can believe apart from trusting in Jesus, nothing you can do apart from trusting in Jesus that will deal with the penalty. Do we all believe that? There's a penalty for our sin. We say it, don't we? But do we believe it? We've committed sin against the holy God and there's a penalty to pay. 
and that we've allowed sin to take over our hearts and there's a power of sin to be dealt with. Although we know that, so many of us though, even when we do sin, what should we do when we sin is go straight to Jesus, isn't it? When we sin, and we know we sin, go straight to him, say sorry, say Lord change me, Lord help me. Thank you for taking the penalty for my sin. Help me to, well, give me the power. Change me to not do it again. But how often do we not do that? How often do we think religiously? We think, I just need to try a bit harder. Be a bit more holy. Read my Bible and then I'll be okay. But that's not right, is it? When we sin, the first thing we do is come to Jesus. Because religion can't save us. He continues, verse 3. Those sacrifices... What were they for then? What were the sacrifices for? If they couldn't actually fix people's hearts, they couldn't take the guilt away because they couldn't deal with sin, do you ever wonder about that? What what were they for? And he tells us this. He says, those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin. What a hard lesson that is. Karen told us, once a year you could go to the Day of Atonement, and there were other sacrifices through the year, but it was a yearly program leading up to the Day of Atonement, that, that most holy day. But it really just reminded people They were sinners. You know, with all that blood and all that sacrifice in the temple, who was allowed to go into where God's presence was? Remember, God's presence was pictured in the Holy of Holies. you remember that? Dav showed us the models a few times. The Holy of Holies, behind a curtain, behind another curtain. So you went into the temple area, and then you went... Then you would go in through to the holy place where the priests were, and then you could go right through into the most holy place. Who was allowed to go in there? Jesus is allowed to go in there. But in the Old Testament times, before Jesus came bodily, it's a picture of Jesus going into God's presence. Lydia? No one was normally allowed for almost all the year on the high priest on one day of the year. And what that was saying is there was a barrier. Sorry, I've done it now. That, what that was saying is sinners couldn't come to God. There was a barrier. The temple stood and it was a barrier. It was showing the people that there was a sin problem. They still felt guilty. They had to keep coming back. Their sin wasn't dealt with. And when they got there, they could only go so far. The people could only go so far. The priests could go a bit further. And the high priest, once he could go a bit further still, there was a barrier. But remember when Jesus died, the curtain was torn, wasn't it, top to bottom, to show the barrier was down. But until those times, what does he say? Those sacrifices were just an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. They had a sin problem. Their religion that God had given them was to teach them they had a sin problem and to give them eyes of faith to look to Jesus. We have a sin problem. We need to look to Jesus. It's no difference. They didn't know all the details. They didn't have the Gospels to read. They didn't know all the details of his coming. But they knew they needed God to come and save them, to pay, to transform, to change, to deal with the power and the penalty of sin. And it's just like we do. They looked to Jesus. And then he quotes from Psalm 40. If you have a Bible in front of you, verse 5, he quotes from Psalm 40. He says something very interesting. Because in Psalm 40, if you go back and read Psalm 40, it says that David is speaking. David's written a psalm about his experience of struggling and God helping him. And yet, the writer here says, when Christ came into the world, he said, and then he quotes David in Psalm 40. David's already talked about this. 
David was the king of Israel. We know who David was, don't we? And in his struggles, and God blessed him and held him in his struggles, yet he spoke not just about himself. He spoke these incredible words about the Lord Jesus. They were a prophecy of the Lord Jesus. It talks about it being written in the scroll. Scrolls were what prophecies were written on. The Bible was given. That's what he's talking about. It's prophecy, and the writer picks it up. And this is what, in the middle of Psalm 40, those wonderful words we open the meeting with, um, Hebrews says this, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will, my God. David Yes, he was writing in his own time, about his own experience, but by the Holy Spirit, he was speaking wonderfully about what the Lord Jesus Christ would come to do. When he got rid of, when he fulfilled all of that Old Testament ritual that couldn't deal with sin, and he brought about God's will, God's eternal will, as it had been from the beginning of time, to save a people for himself by the blood of Jesus. Look how the writer explains it. Verse 8, he says, first, talking about Psalm 40, he, the writer of the Hebrews, said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. He's putting out something slightly odd about Psalm 40. In Psalm 40, David says, God isn't pleased with these sacrifices, even though, who'd, who'd asked for the sacrifices to be done? Back in Exodus and Leviticus, who'd asked for those sacrifices to be done? Who? Who said, you've got to have a tabernacle and sacrifices and who, who'd, said, who'd asked for that? Ayla? God himself. Yeah, God had asked for them. Then he says here to Dave, David's prophesying, he's not pleased with them. He's not pleased with them because it's not that he didn't want them to be done, but they ultimately couldn't bring about God's will, God's purpose. There's nothing wrong with the law of Moses he just couldn't save people. The Ten Commandments set out what God, how God expected to live. Is there anything wrong with the Ten Commandments? No. Can any of you get to heaven by the Ten Commandments? I hope you're all not shaking your heads. You definitely can't. None of us can keep them. Nothing wrong with them. They couldn't ultimately bring about God's purpose of saving a people. The sacrifices. Was there anything wrong with them? The temple, the animals being... There was nothing wrong with it. It was good. God had asked for it to be done. But could it get you to heaven? No. No, it could not. It doesn't satisfy God. Remember early on I said, if you ate a menu in a restaurant, would that satisfy you? No. You'd probably still want a meal, wouldn't you? The menu doesn't satisfy you. Although actually, when the menu comes out, you're quite pleased, don't you? You get to pick what you want, and it's quite, it's quite good. Um, lots of things signposts, if you're on a journey, we've used this illustration before, the signpost that says 60 miles to, to where you're going, you're not there yet, are you? But you know you're getting there. You look forward to getting there. Um, there's nothing wrong with a signpost. And God, there's nothing wrong with the law God gave. There's nothing wrong with the sacrifices God gave. But they couldn't satisfy, not his hunger, they couldn't satisfy his anger, his righteous anger towards sin. Ultimately, God, and this is a hard lesson, God is very angry with sin. 
In fact, he's so angry. The Bible talks about things like hell and, and, and really hard things. God is very, very angry, rightly angry with sin. And could sacrifices in a temple with sheep and goats and stuff, could that make God okay again with sin? No. We need Jesus. That's what he's saying. Those sacrifices, while they were good, while they had a purpose, they couldn't satisfy God. He wasn't pleased with them. He wasn't satisfied with them in that sense. But look what he says. But what is God satisfied with? Psalm 40 then continues. David is prophesying about Jesus who says, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. God isn't satisfied with animal sacrifices. God isn't satisfied with our efforts. That can't get us to heaven. But who is God satisfied with? Who is God pleased with? Karen? Jesus. He kept God's law. He did everything. He died on the cross. He rose again. He's going to take his people to heaven. He's become our priest. God has done ev- Jesus has done everything. And God is pleased with Jesus. But there's another group of people whom God is pleased with. Who's that? God is pleased with Jesus. God only, is only pleased with perfect people. He's pleased with Jesus. And who else is he pleased with? Nathan? I can't hear you. I can't quite catch that. So. Go on, Nathan. The church, because the church, and Dave's already talked about this with what he shared with us earlier, the church has been made righteous in Jesus, haven't we? Jesus has saved us. Jesus has lived the life we couldn't live and died the death we deserved. God is pleased with his son. He's satisfied with his son because Jesus came and fulfilled all of God's will. And he's satisfied with us when we come. It's the will of God. And all scripture is really about this. What's God's big purpose through the whole of scripture? It's that God wants to save a people to be his own people, his church, by the blood of Jesus. That's God's purpose for history, that he can have a people to be his eternally. That's what history is all about. And where do we most clearly see that Jesus is the one who does God's will? Where? See if the children can get this, otherwise grown-ups have a thing. Where is the time where twice, at least twice, Jesus makes clear he is going to do God's will and that's going to mean people are saved. Where does Jesus say, your will be done? Doesn't have to go. Lydia? Just after the Passover meal. It's that evening, the night Jesus was betrayed, Dexter? Not in the Lord's Prayer. In the Garden of Gethsemane. Do you remember me read it to you? Let me read it to you. Matthew 26, Jesus is about to be betrayed. He's about to go to the cross. And he says this. He's talking about fulfilling Psalm 40 where he's the one who comes to do God's will. This is what Jesus says, Matthew 26, verse 39. Going a little further, they're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus fell with his face to the ground and prayed, my father, if it's possible, may this cup, that's God's wrath, God's anger. Jesus is going to drink the cup of God's wrath on the cross. May this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Jesus comes to be this, (coughs) the one who does God's will. From Psalm 40, the one that David prophesied about sheep and goats and bulls and rams, they couldn't bring about God's will to save his people, but Jesus is going to do it, isn't he? And he says again, Matthew 26, 42, a bit later that evening, Jesus went away a second time and prayed, my father, if it's not possible for this cup, 
That's the cup is picturing the, the wrath of God that Jesus is going to suffer on the cross. If it's not possible for this cup to be taken away, unless I drink it, may your will be done. Do you see how Jesus is setting himself up rightly as the one who fulfills this prophecy in Psalm 40? The one who came to do God's will to save God's people. That's our Lord Jesus. Isn't Jesus great? He went through that for us. Bulls and goats and all that was never going to save it, but Jesus did. This is God's will. And what's God's great aim, God's purpose? It's that we will ha- he will have in heaven with him a people bought by Jesus, bought by Jesus' blood. God's will took Jesus to the cross And God's will then, if if that's God's big purpose in history, took Jesus to the cross, should it not be our purpose too? To want to build God's church? That's right, isn't it? God's purpose, God's big plan for history is to build a church through the work of Jesus, through his blood. Well, shouldn't that be how we think about for our lives? What's important to you in your life? God's church, building the church, caring and loving for those who will trust in Jesus, helping one another to keep going. That should be our purpose. Telling people who don't know him yet that they can become part of the church because the church is God's big plan. Jesus came to die so he could have his church. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul writes about Christ saying, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. That's the purpose of, of this life. And that should be our purpose. If we want to live a fulfilled life, a rewarding life, we kind of need to get with God's program, don't we? That's what God is doing. Through Jesus' work on the cross and through we as we carry on his work today, he's building his church. For the sake of time, we're going to just move on to verse 15. We draw to a close. The previous verses really cover, recap and reinforce things he's been covering in previous chapters. So I'd really like to focus on, on verse 15. This is picking up something he's already been teaching about earlier, a chapter or two earlier from Jeremiah 31. Um, but the writer of the Hebrew says this, the Holy Spirit also testifies us to us about this, still talking about Christ's work. First he says, this is the covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my law in their hearts and write them on their minds. That's Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. Jesus brings about a better covenant. But then he adds, Hebrews reminds us what Jeremiah adds. This is amazing. I didn't want to miss this bit out. Their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Think back, children. They were going daily, weekly, monthly to, the, to, to sacrifice. Did it sort their consciences out? Do you remember? Yes or no? Nathan's saying no. It didn't, did it? They still felt guilty. They still had in mind all their awful sins. They couldn't remember. They couldn't forget their sins because they needed someone to come and deal with their sins. The people in the old covenant, unless they were looking to Jesus by faith and, and looking for that day when he would come, they knew they knew their sins were awful. They saw the temple. They saw the death. They, they knew sin was serious. And their consciences weren't cleansed. 
They needed Jesus to come. But look at the change when Jesus comes. When Jesus would come, Jeremiah 31 prophesies, their sinless acts and lawless acts I will remember no more. So before, even the people themselves couldn't forget their own sin. But now, it's not just that the people can forget their sin. Who promises to forget our sins when we trust in Jesus? Who's who's speaking in the prophecy when he says, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more? Who's I? Who's speaking there? Karen? God. God is speaking. God, our Father in heaven, promises that if we trust in Jesus... It's not just that we can forget about our sins and we we don't need to feel guilty anymore. He says, I will remember their sins no more. Isn't that amazing? Because Jesus will take the punishment that we deserve, God doesn't need to think about it again. He doesn't need to think about it again. They don't need to keep feeling guilty. I think that's marvellous. The contrast of earlier in the chapter where the people just kept feeling guilty. They couldn't get the sins out of their mind. But now, Hebrews says... Not even God remembers our sins if we trust in Jesus. Do you know, we need to remember that. Sometimes when we sin, we find it hard even to forgive ourselves, don't we? But if we trust in Jesus, if we're repenting and coming to God in Jesus, he doesn't even remember. He says, I will remember your sins no more. We've got to let them go. Yes, it's it's right to feel rotten about sin, but we can come to Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for your blood. Father, thank you that because of Jesus, you remember my sins no more. Isn't that important? Otherwise, we can stew over things. We come. They used to say in the old days, keep short accounts with God. You know, if you sin, come and repent. And he will not remember. It's blotted out. It's crossed out. It's gone. That's what, that's what Jeremiah promises. In the days when Jesus was come, God says, I will remember their sins and their lawless acts no more. Sometimes we find it hard to forgive each other. Well, let's remember, God doesn't remember. (laughs) Sometimes we can think someone's too guilty to be forgiven. It's ridiculous, really, isn't it? But we can feel like that. Let's remember, because of the blood of Jesus, God doesn't remember. (laughs) Anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, or as it says here, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And I love how Hebrews comments on that. The writer in verse 18 comments, and this is how we'll close. He says this, and where these, that is these sins and these lawless acts, where these have been forgiven through the blood of Jesus, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary.